So welcome to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm joined today by Drs. Barry Casson, Sarah Ickowicz, Stephen Pye, and Lawrence Chow. We're going to be talking over a uh, complicated case together. I'm the host for today's episode, Daniel Ennis. So we'll jump right in. This is Ms. A. She is a 34-year-old woman of Japanese descent, and she has a past medical history only significant for diabetes, and that was diagnosed at age 16. She's never had any complications from that. She has no allergies, and in terms of medication, she's just on metformin, and no other relevant family or social history, and she's otherwise a well young woman who uh, works a steady job and reports no current past drug use and no smoking. So she was otherwise well until the fall of 2016, and at that time, she started to get progressive shortness of breath, uh, PND, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, and orthopnea. At around the same time, after a couple of weeks of symptoms or so, she also got uh, what she described as a rash. And when she goes over the description, it sounds like an erythematous or violaceous, raised, non-tender, non-pruritic lesion over the right forehead. And she never had anything like that before. She also had a brief period, lasted about a couple of months of bilateral parotid swelling. And that came and then went away on its own without any specific treatment. But because of the constellation of symptoms, she was treated on and off by her family physician uh, and walk-in physicians with antibiotics. So I know that's pretty early on in the case, and we haven't really gotten that far yet, but any ideas about what this could represent? I think there's like a lot of what I feel are some specific and non some non-specific symptoms there. Is there anything on people's minds? So Lawrence, you got something to say there? Well, I think the, the constellation of multi-organs with a, a rash and um, glandular swelling, um, my first thought is something rheumatologic. Uh, I don't know specifically uh, which rheumatologic disorder that would be, uh, but a raised violaceous rash um, brings up vasculitis as a possibility. And the parotid swelling, um, I think about IgG4 disease or perhaps uh, Sjogren's, but it's, at this point it's fairly difficult to put together this constellation of symptoms. Okay, so using the principle of roundsmanship, you know I'm a rheumatology fellow, so I'm probably presenting a rheumatology case. You get, Those are some good thoughts. Any other thoughts in the room? Any other pertinent diagnoses you're thinking of? I'm not sure about pertinent diagnoses, but just my approach to this case is just generally looking at the organ systems involved. So dyspnea, PND, or orthopnea, I would think about heart. That's maybe some heart involvement, perhaps maybe some lung involvement, kind of depending on some further investigations, um, skin and glands. So uh, involving those three organs kind of helps me think about, you know, if we're approaching this as a systemic vasculitis or some sort of systemic rheumatologic condition, thinking about the organ systems helped me kind of characterize and put them into illness scripts. So I don't, it can fit a few things for me at this point, but I'll have to know more about the case. I think it's too early to, to be too narrowed down, but um, anytime we have a pneumonia that's being treated with multiple courses of antibiotics, it's pertinent to consider whether it's non-infectious, such so, as an inflammatory cause for a lung disease. So I would say that I, I would agree with everybody's assessment. I, I would take a different spin on it and, and say, here's a Japanese woman 
who's diabetic, uh, who has these organ systems involved, with a, with a particular skin rash, uh, which is new. Given her presentation, I would, I would think that we're going to be using that information to try and solve the problem. At, so I agree it's too early, but although I'd like to invoke vasculitis, I'm going to say that this patient tentatively has sarcoid. So this is way, there's no closure here, but that's what I was thinking about. Okay, perfect. So we'll carry on with some of the story and we'll kind of stop intermittently throughout. So she has a chest x-ray done um, a few months after symptom onset, so December of 2016, and that shows prominent lymphadenopathy. She goes on to a CT chest, which occurs a couple of months later because she's not acutely decompensating. She's doing okay. So that's done in February of 2017, and that shows bulky lymphadenopathy throughout the mediastinum, bilateral hyla, supraclavicular region, and suspected in the upper abdomen with a moderate right-sided pleural effusion. So she goes on to have a CT of the neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and that shows numerous abdominal lymph nodes, but other than what I've described on the CT, no other pertinent findings. Any major changes to the differential at this point? Has that narrowed, broadened? What do you think? Yeah, so when I, when I hear, I have kind of two different pathways of thought. Um, when I hear diffuse, bulky lymphadenopathy in somebody who's young, I think towards uh, lymphoproliferative disorder, like that has to be on your differential. Um, I mean, even though there's heart failure and rash and all these other weird things going on, I think you can't, you know, you can't um, ignore the fact that that is important to rule out. But on the other spectrum, I, I'm trying to piece together all of these weird and unusual findings in someone who's otherwise healthy to try and find a single diagnosis together. And at this point, um, I, I think there's multiple organs involved. Um, as I mentioned before, whenever I'm thinking about multiple organs, especially with some sort of skin involvement, um, you have to think this is systemic, that this is either perhaps uh, rheumatologic or drug-related, um, something that isn't just isolated to one system. So I'm kind of thinking down two streams of thought right now. And specifically, is there anything that could not be explained by a lymphoproliferative disorder? So how many months are we now into this illness? So symptoms began in the fall of 2016. Right. Imaging happened in the winter of 2016, and now we're in February of 2017. Okay, so we're six months. Approximately, so, yeah. with, with progressive illness. Yes. Prog progressive symptoms. The mm -hmm. rash is still there. The shortness of breath is still there. Yes. And now the imaging has come. Now we're seeing imaging. Um, and I just want to. I just want to make the or ask the question. You had mentioned lymphoproliferative disorder. Is there anything about the case so far that actually doesn't fit with a lymphoproliferative disorder, or could all of these things potentially be explained? I, I'd say the heart failure. I mean, it'd be a bit unusual um, to have. I mean, well, this is this is a clinical diagnosis of heart failure that you've described: shortness of breath and orthopnea. We, you know, we haven't necessarily proven that this is cardiac in origin, but on its own, I can't quite put that together with a lymphoproliferative disorder. Other thoughts on that? This could, although a lymphoproliferative disorder by itself may not explain everything, if you did have a secondary Trojans or a secondary vasculitis or such secondary to the lymphoproliferative disorder, that, that may explain things, but then you're kind of invoking two diagnoses in, in some sense. So um, again, kind of going back to the drawing board and having a look to see what else is there. 
Okay. I'd, I'd add to that that lymphoproliferative disorders can be infiltrative, yeah. especially like hyper-eosinophilic syndromes and the lymphoproliferative um, version of that. So, so you could get heart failure in, in those contexts potentially. Can I ask how this patient is doing constitutionally? Have they lost any weight? Are they having night sweats? As far as I'm aware, no, no major constitutional symptoms at this point. Because okay. I find that helpful because if you have imaging that shows profound, <clears throat> profound lymphadenopathy, and if this truly was lymphoma, I would really expect this patient to have constitutional symptoms. So that in itself to me is, is helpful. How big are these lymph nodes that we're seeing? Uh, I actually, I don't have the centimeters. It's just described in the report as bulky. And sorry, Dan, any interesting exposures for a patient? Just kind of thinking back other broad strokes, infection, you know, is any kind of recent travel history or, um, you know, risk factors for you know, HIV or HEP and that kind of stuff? Okay. Anything other than HIV that you're wondering about specifically? Um, maybe HEP C. Um, cryoglobulins can sometimes have a number of different organs, although this doesn't really fit with what I would, you know, think of, of uh, cryoglobulinemia, but um, sometimes that can lead to kind of multi-system involvement. Yeah, I, I think that in like the same breath that you say could be a systemic rheumatologic disorder, you're kind of obliged to also call up various unusual infectious causes too. So I think that's on the list. As far as we know, no major exposures um, no, no specific risks for tuberculosis, HIV, hepatitis. So, so at this point, no, no, no specific consideration of that. But even if you know, I mean, even if she had an exposure, I mean, this is a progressive disease with lymphadenopathy. You'd think at this point, um, in an otherwise healthy person, that you'd have other systemic features that would suggest infection. Okay, so we'll carry on with some of the information of the case. So. She's had her uh, CT scan in February of 2017. A repeat chest x-ray in April of 2017 shows persistence of the pleural effusion and new cardiomegaly, or widening of the mediastinum, which hadn't been noticed before. So this prompts an echocardiogram done April 19th, and that shows an ejection fraction of 60%, but there's septal flattening suggesting RV pressure overload, and there's ruptured of the cord and prolapse, uh, sorry, scalloped prolapse within the anterior mitral leaflet with eccentric moderate to severe MR. The pulmonary artery systolic pressure is estimated at 65 to 70, consistent with severe pulmonary hypertension, and there is biatrial enlargement as well. What do you make of that? What are we going to do next? You know, I, I think the impressive thing so far to me is the lack of urgency of assessing this person who, who probably all of us would have at the first go-around, been much more aggressive, but it, it seems that it's either she's tolerating it well or hasn't participated in her investigations, or we're very cavalier because we're now seven or eight months into it and documenting her slow demise, but documenting some, some course of action that, that isn't supportive of her well-being. So I don't have any more, I think we need to be more aggressive with our investigations, and I, I can, there's a list of things that we're considering but I think we need to get down to it. If we take another picture and not do anything, I'm going home. <laughs> okay, any other, any other thoughts on what you'd want to do at, at this point? What's like the next test on your list or what's your, your next approach, disposition? What do you want to do? You know, like Dr. Kasson said, I mean, you, tissue is the issue here, right? You have bulky lymphadenopathy. We haven't ruled out that this is either infectious or malignant in nature. 
and those would be my that that would be my first task in somebody like this. This you know uh, moderate MR with pulmonary hypertension may or may not be related to that problem on its own, and that could explain the heart failure as a separate issue. But I think the primary issue right now is figuring out what all these lymph nodes are. So t- tissue is the issue, trademark, Lawrence Chow, <laughs> <laughs> 2017. Okay, so, so what's the next test? What do you guys want? Well, I'll add to that. If tissue is the issue, cancer is the answer. <laughs> okay, what's next? What, do you guys, what, what would you like to do at this point? She's in your office. What do you want? I think at this point, with the results of the echocardiogram, you know, if I was seeing this patient in the outpatient setting, I would probably admit them to the hospital for an expedited workup, not only for biopsies, but I don't know, she doesn't seem like she's doing too well. Her echo seems pretty scary to me, so mm-hmm. I, I... I'm concerned. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I see this echo. That's pretty scary to me. She's yeah. a 34-year-old woman. Why, why would she... Absolutely. Why would she have any of these findings? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. She need, I, I would admit her to hospital, absolutely, and tissue may be the issue, but we're also dealing with the urgent issue of a prolapsed mitral valve that she's not tolerating well so she needs you know potentially surgical evaluation she needs invasive tests like an angiogram um, and that needs to be expedited there you go you're gonna get your angiogram so first test that comes back she is um, admitted to hospital and she gets a right heart cath that shows a pulmonary artery systolic pressure of 70 right atrial pressure of 20 evidence of rv alternans left heart shows ejection fraction of 50 percent there's an LVEDP of 30 and severe mitral regurge. And then they then they go into the coronaries. So 70% lesion of the LAD with 50% lesion distally. And two diagonals had 80% lesions proximally. Was anyone expecting any of that? It's very no. surprising. I'm getting a lot of raised eyebrows. So, <laughs> so, no. so, so pretty surprising. How does that change the differential at this point? 34 years old, severe coronary artery disease. Do you think these things are related, so, separate? So do you think Kawasaki's is, a, is at all a possibility in a 34-year-old woman? I'm, I, I'm asking myself. It's rhetorical. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, I mean, it would explain, like, the, the rash, the bulky lymphadenopathy. Um, you know, there's no eye symptoms that I think we're aware about. Usually, I think you see Kawasaki's in a much younger pediatric population. But certainly the coronary arteries. The coronary arteries, being, being yeah. yeah. pretty accelerated atherosclerosis yeah. or even I guess there's no ectasias or anything and sometimes you can see that in coronary arteries but you know so I think when I think about Kawasaki's disease I definitely think younger age um, I think of uh, problems with the mucosa um, definitely some of the some of her symptoms may fit with that her age is very out of keeping with Kawasaki's but sometimes you do see it as a uh, immune reconstitution syndrome in HIV patients who have been started on heart therapy other than that, it would be exceedingly rare to see in an, in an older person. And the coronary lesions of Kawasaki's, <clears throat> I think, would be more aneurysmal later in life. And here we're seeing more of a picture of atherosclerotic. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's got many, I mean, it's really the coronary arteries and her nonspecific symptoms that he introduces. So there's, it's very atypical. I mean, so... I mean, being Japanese, does that pre- predispose you to tachyases? Should we be looking at tachyases as a possibility? Uh, it would involve, it would give some of the features. Uh, again, not typical, but some of the features. So, 
I think it's these are these are interesting thoughts, but we're still beating around the bush. So you 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 teach us when you're not sure and you have no idea what's going on, it's time to go back and reevaluate the patient. And, and so so that's what you're gonna do. I haven't really given you any physical exam findings yeah. yet. So you see her in your clinic and she appears somewhat unwell. Vital signs are stable, heart rate's ninety, but her respiratory rate and saturations are normal. She has a loud pansystolic murmur at the apex radiating to the left axilla. JVP is elevated. Her head and neck exam is normal. Respiratory exam shows decreased air entry to the right lower lung zone. She has the previously noted pleural effusion on that side. She has crackles to both bases. Abdominal, peripheral, vascular, and neurologic exams are all normal, as is her MSK exam. Dermatologic exam demonstrates an erythematous, well-defined, slightly raised, non-tender lesion, right forehead, exactly as she described it before. So you get some initial investigations, and this is pretty basic blood work that she gets day one. So it essentially shows thrombocytosis and an elevated CRP at 44. Yeah. But otherwise, not a lot going on in there, or nothing that's telling. Maybe if you're thinking about lymphoproliferative disorder, the the relatively normal CBC, except for the thrombocytosis, um, may perhaps point away from that, or an eosinophilic syndrome seems unlikely with normal eosinophils. So maybe there are a couple of things that are adjusted on your list, but I don't see anything that adjusts things too substantially. No. But I think it's fair to say at this point, we're still, we're still wondering where we're going, right? We can see organs that have been involved, but we, don't, we haven't tied it together. Absolutely. So you get some second-stage investigations. These kind of come in gradually over time because some of them take some time. So negative antiphospholipids, ANA-negative, double-stranded, ENA, rheumatoid factor, ANCAs, syphilis, cryoglobulins, PNH, flow cytometry, hepatitis serologies, HIV, are all negative. She has normal C3 and C4. ACE level is normal. They do IgG subclasses, and those are all normal. And her triglyceride is 1.6, total cholesterol 3.4, LDL 1.9, HDL 0.8. Nothing too startling there. So fairly negative workup so far. So she's, at this point, she's admitted to hospital already. She undergoes coronary artery bypass graft times two with mitral valve replacement. And while they do that procedure, they do a mammary lymph node biopsy. And that was done intraoperatively. So the pathology from that comes back showing non-necrotizing granulomatous lymphadenitis consistent with sarcoid, which was one of the diagnoses that uh, was mentioned right off the bat. The valve pathology, however, is not available to us. So we're not sure if it was sent or not, but we don't, we don't know if it was a valve problem or, or not. So post-op, her heart failure symptoms begin to improve substantially. She's treated with warfarin, ramipril, aspirin, atorvastatin. And then about a month after she's left hospital, um, she's returning for a routine follow-up, and she's walking in from the parking lot, and she notices new onset imbalance on the left side and left-sided weakness, and that lasts about 10 minutes and then resolves spontaneously. And so she still goes to her appointment, and they check her out, and they send her to the emergency department. So they do a CT angioarch to vertex, and that shows a left caudate nucleus lacunar infarct, occlusion of the right ICA and left vertebral artery, narrowing and stenosis of the bilateral ACAs, left ICA, and right MCA. So they go on to an MRI urgently, 
and that shows acute infarction in the paramedian right frontal lobe, so different than what was shown on the CT. Smaller infarct in the right centrum semiovalley, which they wondered whether this was watershed or embolic, and left corona radiata lesion, which is likely old, with some microhemorrhage. And the occlusion was essentially the same as was seen on the CT. And they specifically mentioned in the report no evidence of vasculitis, and there's premature advanced intra and extracranial atherosclerosis. So what do you think at this point? Are we dealing with one etiology that's explaining all of these symptoms? Are we dealing with multiple etiologies? Is this evolution of the pathology that brought her into hospital in the first place, or is this a sequelae from another diagnosis? So let me actually rephrase it because of the thing I'm at. Is this a vasculopathy uh, or vasculitis um, leading to premature vascular uh, involvement of multiple systems? It's interesting her kidneys are spared. You've given us her lipid profile, which really isn't very remarkable. Um, so at this point, you know, it's it's still, uh, you know, I, I, I guess that um, that that's, I, st- I don't think we're further ahead. Are we further behind? I'm not sure that we're further behind because, uh, you know, we've, she's mechanically had her heart corrected, but I'm not sure that we're further ahead in terms of, an, we don't have an overarching diagnosis. Does she have, there's nothing to suggest morantic endocarditis that we've seen uh, on the pathology? Um, so we don't have pathology from that valve. So I, I can't comment on that, but there was nothing intraoperatively that concerned them about emorrhagic endocarditis, and I think that that would be a, a fairly helpful feature. Yeah. So I mean, I'll take a, a moment, I guess, to acknowledge the really extreme presentation of this patient. <sighs> Whatever it is this happens to be, um, we have an extra clue here, I guess, in the fact that she's had several what looks like ischemic strokes. Um, and in a young person, that calls a a different differential, I guess, than it would in our average stroke patient. And, and I'm struggling exactly with how to tie this together. Uh, certainly a diagnosis of neurosarcoid, although difficult to make, I think needs to be entertained. The other piece to think about would be a, an embolic or a thrombotic cause. So I'm not sure in the context of the rest of her serology whether she had any workup for um, coagulopathy um, and would consider re-imaging her heart because uh, embolism from a thrombosis or uh, infection, potentially secondary to her cardiac surgery or, or the pathology that's already there uh, would be a consideration. But I'm, I'm still not sure how to tie this all together. I would say one more thing that, that I would consider in a stroke in a young person, um, in, in vascular involvement in a young person is syphilis. Hmm. I mean, we have to, so even though our original test for the syphilis was negative, I'm not, we may have caught it in a different stage. So I think that's another consideration that I would look at. I think the way that, I mean, my understanding is that syphilis would lead to kind of a more of a local vasculitis as opposed to kind of a diffuse accelerated atherosclerosis, which is kind of how I'm thinking at this case now in somebody who's 34. So I, I don't have a broad differential for somebody with accelerated atherosclerosis, but I probably would start there um, as kind of my key log to, to looking at this case. So, I mean, I know there's some weird, ca- like glycogen storage diseases mm-hmm. and um, there's uh, like growth hormone excess, which doesn't necessarily, you don't have to get a lot of the physical manifestations and Kawasaki's and cocaine use. Like uh, there's a couple of things that can lead to accelerated atherosclerosis. I, I would, I, that's what I would look up for, for this patient to see if anything fit the bill for her. 
I think it's safe to say that uh, whatever this is, it's not going to be a, a common presentation of that disease. So I think mm-hmm. regardless, we're still at a stage where we have to entertain all of that. And as you said, Stephen, also considering metabolic uh, diseases. I think at this point as well, with the consideration, the easy thing to do would be to try to get a bit more tissue. And the obvious place for me would be the, the skin rash. So I get the sense that at this point in the case, actually, the skin rash is has never really bothered her that much right and i'm not sure that it's really uh, delved into that much because she has such other obvious pathology um so there's lots of other stuff to do so i think the skin rash kind of falls by the wayside for a little bit so at this point she's evaluated by neurology and rheumatology in hospital and she she now has the formal diagnosis of sarcoidosis with the the tissue and her clinical features However, the comment was made that the strokes were not felt to be related directly to the sarcoidosis. She started on oral methotrexate for the sarcoid, and she's discharged with a plan for very, very close follow-up. Everyone's still worried about her, but she doesn't have to stay in hospital. She's so resolved. I, I disagree with that, and I'm not, you know, I brought up the issue of sarcoidosis, and I'm not convinced she has sarcoidosis. Uh, she has granulomatous disease. I mean, I'd be much more comfortable with the diagnosis if we demonstrated uh, the skin involvement and other areas that we saw the same thing, and even then, I might not be, I might not be totally comfortable. I'm assuming her calcium is normal with this burden of disease. Her calcium is normal, and then her vitamin D level is normal. Not available, because I think those are things that would be pushing me towards sarcoid. I mean, we haven't got a diagnosis as far as I'm aware. So, w- would you be able to kind of expand on what your differential is then for the non-caseating granulomas in this context? <clears throat> What else um, could cause that for you? Yeah, so so non catenating granu- granulomas, a lymphoma is still there. She's uh, she has other features, but Whipple's is a uh, is also within the. You uh, you've probably seen this before. Uh, Whipple's is in the differential. Um, there are other, and I'm not familiar with every systemic disease, and, and that and even. People with, with caseating granuloma have non-caseating granuloma. So TB would still be probably in the differential. So I think that I don't think we have enough. I'm not comfortable with the diagnosis of sarcoidosis. And I understand there are compatible features, but I'm still not comfortable with that diagnosis. Was there any other comment? I'm sure the imaging was reviewed and re-reviewed. And I'm just wondering whether there was any other comment on concern regarding CNS vasculitis. Through the po- reports, it's obvious that the imaging was reviewed over and over as a really concerning mm-hmm. part of the case. And just like you're saying, uh, neurosarcoidosis was on the list, and that was something that everyone wanted to exclude. But also CNS vasculitis of, of other causes is also on the list. And differentiating vasculitis from vasculopathy was an, a really important uh, kind of fork in the road in the case. And the note suggests that this was carefully reviewed and there was no evidence of vasculitis. Is that enough to exclude it for you? My understanding is MRI or MRAs are fairly sensitive at being able to rule out a vasculitis. If that's truly the case that it was carefully reviewed, I would be comfortable saying that this is not an active vasculitis, but I don't think this person has normal vasculature as well. Again, going back to tissue is the issue. I've never done this, but getting some vascular tissue somewhere might be very helpful to prove if this truly is atherosclerotic disease or some other vasculopathy that might be another 
direction that we can take this case. But don't we have vessels? Then we have coronary arteries? We have the angiogram, but we don't have any tissue. We don't have tissue. Okay. So the tissue then that you're asking for is tough to get, right? So you're, you're, I think you're asking for a brain biopsy. Um, and I can say that for CNS vasculitis, uh, that is much more common in children. They have a much easier time getting that than, than we do in the adult world. It's very hard to convince a neurosurgeon to, to do that procedure. Uh, but you can have normal imaging in vasculitis or nonspecific imaging, and that includes MR. So sometimes you need to go on to conventional angiogram, or even with a normal conventional angiogram, you can still have autoimmune brain, brain disease that requires biopsy. So I don't think that MR would entirely exclude it, but if it's positive, it could help, and it could certainly give you some more information. So that's a, that's a good point. So we'll, we'll carry on with the case a little bit. So she's discharged from hospital. Four days after discharge, she has two episodes of complete vision loss in the right eye, lasting two hours each with gradual return of vision thereafter. She's readmitted to hospital. She has a repeat CT angiogram, and that shows suspected new hypodensity in the left paramedian frontal lobe, concerning for a new acute infarct. Remember that she's on aspirin and warfarin already. So what do you want to do at this point? The silence, I think, explains it all. I mean, I think that we're really up against it. Um, we don't have a diagnosis. Her disease is progressive. The, the, the treatment that we've been we've instituted for her disease, I'm surprised she hasn't been on prednisone because she seems to be knocking off vessels one after another while we're trying to organize our thoughts and our investigations. So, I, th- I you know, I, I, you know, I think at this time that, uh, that we have to be aggressive. I don't think there's any chores. Um, so an aggression for me would be uh, the consideration uh, of a vasculitis versus a vasculopathy. I mean, you asked about granulomas. I mean, tachyases and uh, giant cell arteritis both produce granulomas. So, I mean, I, we're, we're, we're still in, in, that, in that area. And I mean, if we're looking for a vessel that's accessible, then we could consider a temporal artery biopsy uh, since out of convenience, if you like, but that would be a vessel that we could explore. And I would treat her at this point with high-dose corticosteroids. And to clarify, uh, with this particular case, the timing of steroids is actually a little bit unclear. We're not, we're not 100% sure the day that it started, if it was at this point or if it was um, just before her, her previous discharge. We're not entirely sure. We don't think she was on steroids at this point. Before her event, before this last event. Before these new events, we're unclear if she was on steroids at that time. So Mm -hmm. it's possible that she was. Um, So on this readmission to hospital, she has a gallium scan on July 25th. And that shows uptake in the salivary glands, lacrimal glands, abdominal lymph nodes, mediastinum, and a small spot in the lumbar spine that I, I get the sense they weren't too excited about. And they said... This was felt to be consistent with active sarcoid. And as far as we can tell, she's initiated on prednisone at this time, one milligram per kilogram. One week later, she represents to her rheumatologist for assessment. And at that time, she has a new onset right arm mass at the antecubital fossa. It was firm, it was raised, it was erythematous, and it was associated with a small epitrochlear lymph node. Another episode of amaurosis fugax um, occurred 
just before coming to the rheumatologists, and that lasted about three minutes. At that point, she was readmitted for IV methylprednisolone uh, for five days, followed by oral prednisone with gradual taper and a plan to continue the methotrexate. She had gradual resolution of the antecubital mass, improvement of the lesion over the forehead uh, that she'd had since fall of 2016, and no recurrent neurologic episodes since then. She has a follow-up MRI done November 7th, and that shows evolution of previously documented infarcts, scattered white matter changes, which are nonspecific but could be due to chronic small vessel disease, and new lesions within the cortical white matter of the left frontal lobe, interval stenosis at the origin of the left ACA. What do you want to do at this point? What are we even dealing with? What category of diseases that have we, are, are we? So we're not you, anchored. You weren't, you weren't sure that this was sarcoid? Yeah, we're not anchored. Do and we I have think, a category? I, but I, that's, I think the whole issue is that we're not anchored, but she's progressive. I don't think I let her out of hospital every time, you know, we, so we're treating things that we're still not, we're no, still not confident. And I would, again, go back to the skin rash and go back to trying to get some tissue because serology, nothing else we've done has, has anchored us. All we're doing is, is observing different structures that are, we see are there and then they're not there. So that yeah, seems like every, every treatment that we're doing is just a band-aid solution for the current problem at hand. You know, she has a stroke, we put her on aspirin, we anticoagulate her. Um, I think we're still really lacking in a, in a, obviously in a diagnosis that will ultimately guide our therapy. Um, what category of, of disease? Uh, I, I'm still leaning towards rheumatologic just because of the multi-organ involvement, the lack of significant constitutional symptoms. And it seems like we always end up in that realm with these cases where nobody has any idea what's going on and you empirically give them steroids. And she responded somewhat from, from what I understand to the, to the trial of steroids. Does the, does the issue that Dan told us, and I'm asking myself, does the issue of finding stenosis in the vessels now suggest that this is a vasculopathy or a vasculitis? I was just going to ask, what was the time frame again between the two scans? Because I'm just thinking in a yeah. shorter time period, if that was in, if there was interval stenosis, that would probably suggest something more of a, I would think of a vasculitis as I opposed to agree. a... So essentially the scans were done between early July and the last scan was done November 7th. So months. So, you know, I think that points me more towards a vasculitis-related yeah. process. And the other thing that's abnormal is the parotid glands also seem to have lit up on that scan as well, too. So another place for tissue that was radiographically abnormal would be maybe someplace that I would go for, for tissue. So I, I just should mention, you're probably not familiar, but gallium scanning used to be one of the criteria for looking for sarcoidosis. And so if, if that were part of the criteria, the gallium scanning in this situation is pretty positive, which would be certainly compatible with, but not diagnostic of the, the disease. So we have some things pointing towards sarcoidosis, but if this is sarcoidosis, it's the most progressive aggressive sarcoidosis I've ever seen. So I have a question about gallium scan. Does that differentiate for you sarcoid versus a lymphoproliferative no. disorder? Okay, so lymphomas can still light up on a gallium yeah. scan? I think the, the pattern uh, of the gallium scan is helpful. I, somewhere, I, I think you can Google this, but there's some sort of panda pattern that is more consistent with uh, gallium scan. I think that's the parotids swelling up. So, But anything 
that's inflammatory or active will show up in a gallium scan. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of just content knowledge around sarcoid for, for ourselves and also for the listeners. So sarcoidosis, which is the diagnosis that this person has at this moment, Systemic disease of unknown etiology, it's characterized by the formation of immune granulomas in various organs, mainly the lungs and lymphatic system. The prevalence is somewhere up to 65 per 100,000, and highest rates are in Northern European, African-American populations, women more than men, and 25 to 45 seems to be the uh, general age at onset, but it can be higher in other populations like European and Japanese populations. So the pathophysiology isn't entirely elucidated yet, but it's felt to be this exaggerated immune response to unidentified antigens. Classic rheumatologic disease in that way. It's, it seems to have some environmental triggers. So they actually noticed a high incidence in firefighters after 9-11. Unclear what the specific exposure there was. In terms of genetics, there are HLA haplotypes that seem to be related. So the HLA DRB1 uh, predict spontaneous remission, whereas DRB1, 14, and 15 predict chronic course. And that's becoming more, that's being researched more and more. And there were recent presentations uh, at, a, at the American Rheumatologic Conference looking at the genetics of this disease because that seems to be very helpful in terms of differentiating what you're going to see clinically. Diagnostic criteria appears to be clinical and radiologic. So you have to have both evidence of non-casein granulomas, and other diseases ruled out. And the most common symptoms appear to be more respiratory, skin, and eye, um, as well as um, common signs being bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy or diffuse micronodular infiltrates in the lungs. And in terms of clinical features, the most common uh, dermatologic uh, features can include papules, nodules, lupus pernio, subcutaneous sarcoidosis, you can get peripheral lymphadenopathy, which is predominantly in the cervical and supraclavicular regions, and to a lesser extent, inguinal, axillary, and epitrochlear can also be on the list. Eye involvement can in include uveitis at any point in the eye, anterior, intermediate, and posterior, and you can also get retinal vascular changes. You can get liver abnormalities, splenomegaly, CNS involvement, which we're gonna talk about a bit more specifically, renal and MSK involvement as well. So I want to focus on some of her cardiac symptoms. Could her cardiac symptoms be reasonably explained by sarcoid? So she had a mitral valve prolapse with a chordae rupture. So there are some cases of sarcoidosis presenting specifically with mitral regurgitation with cord rupture. And on in those cases, it appears that the sarcoidosis infiltrated very specifically into the papillary muscles. So that has been reported before but it's quite rare. In terms of the neurologic manifestations, the one that you obviously want to know about is vasculitis, vasculopathy, and stroke. So we'll get to those in a minute, but the, uh, the common neurologic manifestations, it's pretty variable in terms of the actual incidence of these or prevalence of these, but facial nerve palsy uh, is up to 25%, optic neuritis, vestibulococcular involvement, meningitis, intraparenchymal brain lesions, seizure, depression, neuroendocrine dysfunction, spinal cord involvement, and peripheral neuropathy. Not on that list is stroke vasculitis or vasculopathy. And so looking at sarcoid and stroke, there was a recent review in 2017 that showed 
Histologic analysis of patients with CNS involvement may show granulomatous cerebral angiitis, so there is some irritation of the blood vessels there. And angiitis may predispose to, to cerebrovascular accidents. And in this population-based study, there was about a three-fold increased risk of stroke, a two-fold increased risk of TIA. But they also note that there's also an increased risk of MI and early atherosclerosis and peripheral arterial disease. So what they were thinking is that actually maybe sarcoid um, causes premature atherosclerosis due to chronic inflammation rather than that it's actually causing stroke itself. So I think from what I can find in the literature, it's not clear that sarcoidosis is specifically associated um, as an etiology of stroke, vasculitis, or vasculopathy, but might be able to explain early coronary artery disease to a degree. I'm uncomfortable. Well, I won't tell you what I'm uncomfortable. What are you uncomfortable with? <laughs> I think I'm just generally uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is this is certainly dramatic. And and another piece of this case, hindsight is always twenty twenty. But every time you're telling us about her coming back for assessment on, uh, as an outpatient with another complication, I sort of my level of discomfort rises. Um, yeah. So so I, I mean I I think that. It's difficult to hedge a diagnosis based on uh, based on case reports, although I do recognize that whatever this is, it's going to be an, an uncommon presentation, probably of an uncommon disease. And I don't think we've quite gotten there by way of ruling out other causes of, of CNS vasculitis. And we sort of, I know we sort of scoffed at, at brain biopsy earlier, and, and obviously that's uh, uh, about as invasive as it gets. But if she's having more events and progressive symptoms, it may be something that you actually think about, obviously with a high level of caution. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things here that makes you lean away from saying this is just aggressive atherosclerotic disease. I mean, first off, like she's only 34. When I think about accelerated atherosclerosis, I'm thinking about somebody who's presenting in their 40s or 50s, not so much in an otherwise healthy 30-year-old woman. The fact that she's on aspirin and warfarin and continues to have strokes, to me, this is not cardioembolic, but there's got to be something wrong and active with the vessels um, to have that degree of thrombogenesis. Um, it'd be very, very unusual for that to be atherosclerosis or for this to be cardioembolic. There's something very wrong with her <laughs> vessels. and. I think tissue is the issue here. Well, my concern, though, is that um, let's say we went ahead and did a brain biopsy, so we're convinced that we're going to go ahead, and now we end up with a pathology we already have already seen. Mm -hmm. So we now have granulomas that are non-caseating. We have vessels that are... Does that, does that help us anymore? I mean, are we still... To me, the we, ha we have some tissue. We haven't explained the possibility... We haven't explained the etiology of that that infl inflammatory response. I think this is an inflammatory response, which, which phenotypically fits sarcoid if we stretch it. But I mean, it has to be the most aggressive case of sarcoid that I've ever heard of or seen. I mean, that, that's a really good point. Like, I, I mean, I know we're tossing around doing biopsies, but would it really change our management or do we have enough information, even without specific tissue, do we have enough information with how she's presenting and the progression of her illness to just treat her as if she has some very aggressive inflammatory disorder 
um, and just whack her with more mm-hmm. steroids or other immunosuppressive agents? Um, to me, I'd say yes, that there's enough here to do that. I'm not so worried that there's a, an infectious etiology for what we're seeing um, that I would feel comfortable to give her immunosuppressive. What would you do if this was yourself? Sorry, were you, were you going to say something? No, I was just going to ask if there had been a discussion around cyclophosphamide um, during her admission or if that was reflected in any of the consults. As far as I'm aware, cyclophosphamide wasn't uh, on the table at this point. I think the review of imaging so far had essentially been there's no evidence of CNS vasculitis. And recognizing the, the changes over time, there still wasn't epi- there still wasn't evidence of CNS vasculitis. So no, I don't think that heavier duty immune suppression was necessarily discussed, although uh, certainly it could have been. So I, I, I would do that. At this time, what I would do if I were in this situation, I'd do the things that I thought about earlier, and one was to do her skin biopsy. It's accessible. Two is to consider a temporal artery biopsy to look at those vessels. And the third is to repeat a lymph node biopsy. And I think that those, and I would not do a brain biopsy, because I'm not sure where we're at. Um, and with this extent of, of granulomatous involvement, if, if this is what it is, the finding of, of no calcium elevation is, is really startling. So that's those are the three things that I think I'd do. If this was you, if you were this patient and you've progressed this way, what would you want done for yourself? That's what, that's what I would that's want what done. That's what you do for yourself. I, I, would not, I would not allow more aggressive chemotherapy or, or therapy of any point until I had I was sure we were doing the right thing. What about from the, the rest of you? Where, where do you feel you're at in terms of like diagnostic certainty? Are you certain enough that you feel this is sarcoid with neurologic involvement? This is something else with neurologic involvement. This is just atherosclerosis. What would you want for yourself? It may just be that my knowledge of these diseases is lacking. And so I'm a bit tunneled vision in terms of what I'm seeing. I can't think of other diagnoses that are on the table that um, that I'd be worried to be immunosuppressed for. So, And this is somebody who's been having multiple episodes of amaurosis. Uh, the next event, she could be completely blind. Um, I would opt for aggressive treatment now. But I, and I'm sure you've done this, but we have to weigh that potential um, against the possibility that if this is just atherosclerosis, this is just very advanced atherosclerosis that is now presenting, you get no benefit from cyclophosphamide, right? And and just risk. So how certain are you that this is an evolving inflammatory or autoimmune or malignant disease that's going to probably improve with cyclophosphamide. How confident are you? Like, where, where do you put that on, on your confidence meter? You know, I would probably look to someone like Dr. Kassin and ask if he's ever <laughs> seen a 34-year-old Japanese woman who's diabetic with this degree of atherosclerosis. And if the answer was no, I would be comfortable with that answer. For me, if I've had changes on my MRI of my brain and I've had all these, I, I would basically, I maybe it's just my own personality, but I would let anybody biopsy anything really to come to a diagnosis because 
for me, you know, again, I think a lot of things are pointing towards, again, if we're thinking about broad categories, autoimmune, rheumatologic conditions, but if this was a malignancy, I wouldn't want that diagnosis to be potentially made later um, because I was given a course of, of steroids. So I would let anybody biopsy anything and I would just take the risk because I think not going forward with this uh, or, or not properly investigating this uh, would lead to, to something much worse. I think there's an order of what I would have biopsy, skin first, then maybe my parotid, then maybe my lymphadenopathy, so if, if, then <laughs> my brain. But I would let people biopsy anything. To, to so get if you'll recall, them. though, the the skin manifestations improved with the that's uh, right with right. the steroids. So that's not as available to you as it was before. So I I think that actually you're driving at a more eloquent way of asking the question I'm asking, which is when you biopsy something, you're going to wait a couple of days for it to get red, and then you're going to wait a day to interpret it, and then you're going to do it again and again and again and you're losing time. So if you could biopsy one thing in this person or it, or do one test at this point, the getting right to the heart of whatever's going on, what's that going to be? Would you let someone do a brain biopsy on you in this case, or, or as Dr. Kasten had suggested, would you go for other more accessible arteries, even though those hadn't necessarily caused dysfunction yet? If it were me, I would go for the brain biopsy just myself, but that's just me speaking. Sarah, what would you do? I mean, it's, yeah, it's certainly a relatively uncomfortable decision. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how gallium scanning compares to PET scanning by way of elucidating sarcoid, but I think ultimately there's some degree that that would just be beating around the bush, kind of trying to find other ways to image and document things that you already know are there. So I'm not how much, not sure how much value that would add. Same question would come from biopsying another lymph node. If we if we saw the same pathology, I'm not sure how much that would add. Boy, it would have really been nice to have that that mitral valve. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's too bad that we don't have that to aid in our diagnosis. I think you'd have to have a careful discussion with the patient about about it. But I, I think I'm sort of leaning towards what Stephen is saying, which is trying to get some tissue because ultimately. The underlying question that we're trying to answer is, is this an unlucky lady who has sarcoid and also has very advanced atherosclerotic disease for other reasons? Or is all of this stuff related to a unifying diagnosis? I really think that's the essential question that we have to answer. The only thing I'd say about this is that, you know, when we do biopsies on different organs, and I'm thinking of lung biopsies, in patients who we actually see the pathology 60% or thereabouts are helpful. So, you know, if if I were the neurosurgeon and you were the internist asking me to biopsy, what would you ask me to biopsy and what am I going to take out? So am I going to take out the blood vessel or the the parenchyma or what what, what am I biopsying here? And and how big a biopsy do you want? I mean, it's rhetorical because I'm asking myself, I'm not sure how how you decide what you're going to do and where you're going to do it. And how much and to do that and find that you just have a piece of brain that isn't very helpful would be really uh, I mean what do you do then you're Mm -hmm. back at it so we're dealing with a lot of discomfort and I think that that's exactly what the team has been trying to has been dealing with all along and weighing the risks and benefits of the various treatments and the various procedures and keeping her in hospital versus sending her home and I think that that's in the moment actually a really tricky balance and deciding to go with cyclophosphamide or methotrexate, all these different treatments, 
come with a lot of risks. At this point, all of her neuroimaging is formally reviewed uh, by two separate neuroradiology teams, and I'll, I'll read you the, the formal review. The occlusion of the right internal carotid artery and the left vertebral artery are secondary to premature atherosclerosis. There is quite extensive atherosclerotic plaque along the bilateral internal carotid arteries for a patient of this dated age. Premature atherosclerosis also likely accounts for the luminal irregularities of the intracranial arteries. So essentially what they're saying is there, there's only one thing that we see, and it's atherosclerosis everywhere. That's as close as you're going to get with imaging, I think, to answering your, your question at the moment. So you have to make a decision about pursuing these other biopsies, and I think that that's I think that certainly we would discuss these risks and benefits with the patient. At this point, we're waiting on evaluation by the Stroke Neurology Service, and we're considering a referral to the metabolics team with the specific question of what is the differential diagnosis for early, very aggressive atherosclerosis, which is not something that I think the, the current treating team knows the answer to and may help to answer this case. So I, I can, you know, I would take the other view and, not, and just the opposite view and say, if you have a case of sarcoidosis, if this is truly sarcoidosis, how many times would you go to methotrexate, cyclophosphamide, or any other? I mean, you think about sarcoid, where the largest majority of patients aren't treated at all and get better. So now you're going into tiger country where there's no data at all, absolutely none. So to commit her to more aggressive therapy, which is really, to me, it's it it doesn't I, I don't think it's it's supported um, and I think that uh, I would agree I, I would still biopsy your temporal artery I mean to me that's so simple and it might answer some of the questions and I think the metabolic team is is helpful but th this doesn't start out as a metabolic problem right this 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 is not a metabolic problem so, so I assume she's still in hospital and you're still following her uh, as far as I know she's as an outpatient right now on, on what therapy Right now, she is on steroids, methotrexate, and uh, high-target warfarin, aspirin, and the remainder of her cardiac medications. Wow. And Apple E has been done. Have we looked at her lipid profile, or have we looked at those things? Yeah, so her lipid profile uh, was reviewed early in her investigations, and that was pretty unexciting. Nothing too startling there. So although we don't have a resolution to the case yet, I'll keep everyone posted on what ends up coming back or if we do find a, an answer that we haven't thought of yet. Any closing thoughts before we finish up? Best of luck sorting this one out there. <laughs> this is a, a, a very challenging case. Absolutely. Yeah, I think even, even though we don't have an answer at this point, I think it's interesting kind of just sitting in a room seeing the different thought processes of, of people. So I think in some sense that's a great case to highlight that there's many different approaches to you know such a complex patient but at the end of the day we all kind of get to the same same thoughts yeah I, I'm intrigued um, I'm intrigued by this presentation of diseases that we're aware of and trying to fit it into a disease categories that we're, we're we know that we're, and we're comfortable with I'm not certain that we actually have the right disease to begin with, and I, I just, I just hark back to something that was brought up earlier, and that's the the knowledge right now of IgG4, and how we 
we parse that diagnosis into a variety of different syndromes, a variety of different presentations, we could have had the same discussion with Michalik syndrome and other syndromes. And then suddenly we find out that, hold on now, it's not in any of those, it's this. And I'm not sure that we're not looking at this, whatever this is, and that I think we're still removed from a diagnosis. So I take some a little bit of comfort in the fact that I present a case that I have no idea what to do with and that I get to sit in a room with some smart people who also have no idea what to do with it. Um, I think that definitely when, when we get to like this stage of a very difficult case, it's, it's definitely time to pause and say who is the best person or who are the best people to, to ask for help um, as a second opinion or a third opinion because with all the information that we have and all the literature review that you want to do, you will not solve this case without help. So I think um, uh, certainly enlisting some of these other services is going is going to be helpful. Yeah, I know. I think it's I think it's really good. I think the other thing you might do is I would phone NIH, um, and they have a uh, they have a service there that looks at rare and difficult diagnostic problems. From and you have to petition to get in there, and you have to. And I don't re- remember the name of the service but they do have this service, and I think this would be worthwhile discussing with them. I think they're probably just going to call um, their favorite doctor, Barry Casson, ask him <laughs> again. so I think that'll just lead us in circles. But no, but I, I, in, in truth, I think that this would be, I mean, if I were this patient's family, I'd be totally frustrated. If I were the patient, every time you see me, five days later, something else falls off. My ear falls off. I'm blind. I can't do this. I can't do that. So we're not helping her. Thanks for the presentation. You're welcome. So we'll bring the case to a close. Thanks for all of your participation. Mm -hmm.